So yes, this is a relatively, I guess, a newer described technique, uh, which involves identifying the epidural space in, in the standard technique. Yep. Uh, and then we usually use the CSE kit and we make a puncture in the dura um, with a fine pencil point needle. Uh, yep. But then we don't inject any medication into the fecal sac. Um, so just make a hole in the dura, remove that needle and then thread the epidural catheter as usual. Uh, theoretically, then this provides better quality analgesia. Yep. And there's been some studies in... Uh, labor ward epidurals that have shown some benefits to this technique. So presumably some of the um, drugs that, that we've been injecting. Uh, hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this week it's myself and uh, Declan, uh, who's our enthusiastic education fellow this term. Thanks thanks for coming back, Declan. Hello. Nice to be back. So um, today um, we thought we would um, do a, uh, resurrect the journal club. So we, I remember we um, we did one about a year ago. It might even be longer than that. And we said we were going to do it regularly and we haven't done one since. But this time we are dedicated to the cause. Um, and I'm going to be going away for a, f- for a few weeks holiday over, over Christmas in January. So I thought um, we'll get in... Um, I'll try and record a few podcasts before I go. Yeah. Very good. And yeah, while whilst Declan's around um, as well, so before we kick off, Roger, can I surprise you? Yeah. Okay. Go for it. Uh, I'm aware it's a tradition that we share a joke. To start the podcast. <laughs> okay. Usually, oh, we don't have to start it. Well, you can just slide it in um, unexpectedly, which is something. That I was told it has to be a dad joke. Yeah. And given that I soon will be a dad, here's my yeah. dad joke for you. Okay. All right. Uh, you work with pediatricians, don't you, Roger? Sometimes, yeah. yep. Do you, do you know why you should never annoy the paediatricians? Um, no, why, why should I never annoy them? Well, I've heard they have very little patience. <laughs> okay. okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, good. <laughs> okay, Carry well on. done, well done. <laughs> good. <laughs> I can see you're itching to get that out of the way. I was, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, so how are we going to run it this week? Um, so um, we decided to just go away and find a couple of papers of interest so I said to Declan just find something of interest um, doesn't have to be recently published it just can be something that you think you would be of interest to the listeners and we can discuss so I managed to find uh, three three papers and uh, you've got a couple so I've got two yes yep do you want to kick off with yours I think um, you've made a few notes and you've got a few interesting ones oh, they, sure they look really good all right, so I'll start with this paper, which is entitled The Effect of Dural Puncture Epidural versus Standard Epidural for Epidural Extension on Onset Time of Surgical Anesthesia in Elective Caesarean Delivery. Uh, and this was published in JAMA uh, just this month. Okay, so that's quite a big journal. <coughs> yep. Yeah, props to them. Uh, so this study comes out of the University of Arkansas Medical Center in the USA. And from reading the paper, my understanding is that they were trying to answer the question of does a duropuncture epidural provide better epidural top-up than a standard epidural? Um, so the way the study is designed, this was a randomised uh, double-blinded trial it was, uh, in elective caesarean deliveries. Now, they admitted these women and placed a, either an epidural or the DPE around an hour in advance of when their caesarean delivery was going to be. So that's a bit unusual, isn't it? Yeah. We were talking about this before. So most people having elective caesareans don't have an epidural top-up, do they? Yeah, so that would be unusual, <coughs> and, and they do comment that that's not their usual practice. So normally, yeah, a spinal block would be would provide 
you know, the best quality yep. anesthesia. Anyway. But obviously it's, it's harder to do um, studies in sort of non-elective caesareans where, yeah. where you're topping up every day. It it's all after hours. They could consent so them in advance. They could bring yeah. them in during So the I can day. see why they would yeah. do, do this technique yeah. uh, or, or do the study this Some way. more convenient study design, exactly, yeah. yeah. So they put the block in, either the DPE or the epidural, uh, and then they did a few techniques to try and mimic a labor ward epidural. So they established a block up to T10 using um, a weak bupivacaine solution, 0.065 with fentanyl, so similar to us, okay. to try yep. and mimic a labor epidural. Uh, and then an hour, around an hour later, they'd bring them up to the birth suite and they'd then attempt to top it up yep. for a caesarean delivery. Should uh-huh. we? Um, I just wonder whether everyone who's listening knows what a dural puncture epidural is. So um, stand, I think most people hopefully understand what a normal epidural is. We, do you want to define the difference? Because uh, there's a technique that's not used that much in Australasia mm. or Australia New Zealand. Um, so, yes, this is a relatively, I guess, a newer described technique uh, which involves identifying the epidural space in, in the standard technique. Yep. Uh, and then we usually use the CSE kit and we make a puncture in the dura um, with a fine pencil point needle. Uh, yep. But then we don't inject any medication into the fecal sac. Um, so just make a hole in the dura, remove that needle and then thread the epidural catheter as usual. Uh, theoretically, then this provides better quality analgesia. Yep. And there's been some studies in uh, labor ward epidurals that have shown some benefits to this technique. So presumably some of the um, drugs that, that we then inject into the epidural space can cross through that hole and get into the um, intrathecal uh, yeah, fluid. I think, I think that's, that's, is that the, that's hoped. the theory. Yeah, that's yep. the theory, yeah. Uh, right, so so these women, they have their DPE or their epidural placed and they're brought up and it's attempted to then be topped up uh, and then uh, they have their cesarean delivery. Okay. Um, so the main hypothesis was would the DPE group have a faster onset of surgical block from the okay. time of the top so up? W- so would it be, uh, so I guess they're trying to say is it, if you're worried about um, needing to do an urgent cesarean mm-hmm. and, and using an epidural top up, is it, a better technique having a DPE on board than, yeah. a, than a normal epidural. Yeah, exactly. So in this case, because they were elective deliveries, it probably doesn't actually matter that long, much how long it takes to top up. Yep. Uh, but this is trying to mimic that emergency s- scenario where you have a yep. epidural placed down in labour ward and it's then being topped up for the ward. So in that case, saving a few minutes in your top-up time could be very beneficial. Yep, definitely. Um, and so the main finding was indeed that they did have a faster onset of surgical blockade in this uh, in this in the group, uh, yep. where there was about three and a half minute to four minute difference between the groups, okay, uh, which is probably clinically significant. I'd say. Uh, then the other difference that they found, they had a composite outcome, uh, which consisted of a binary of five different outcomes. Uh, <coughs> uh, so those were a combination of. The failure to achieve a T10 bilateral block uh, preoperatively, so that means after citing the epidural and then trying to establish it for the mimicked labour analgesia. The second one was failure to achieve a surgical block within 15 minutes of attempt to top up. Uh, the third one was a requirement for any intraoperative analgesia salvage. The fourth was the requirement for a peak neuraxial, or the fifth was conversion to general anaesthesia. So, so those are all important outcomes, aren't they? Like if I was topping up an epidural for an emergency seizure and I had to do it and it didn't work and I had to do another block or I had to knock them out and give them a GA or they had pain during surgery. 
So the occurrence of any of those would all of those things cause a problem. A, yeah. All of those things would annoy me and mm. would, be, would annoy the patient, mm-hmm. the sort of patient-centered mm-hmm. things. Yep. Yeah. So um, the observed composite rate was 15% in the DPE group and 36% in the standard epidural group. Yep. Okay. So that's a difference. That's, difference. That's, that's also a good uh, mm. tick. A tick in the box for DPE. So yep. they say that, uh, yeah, so you get a faster top-up and probably a better quality of block with the DPE technique. Uh, and then there's a whole range of things which were there was no difference in. Um, so this would include things like the adverse events, nausea, vomiting, pruritus, shivering. Uh, patient satisfaction scores were the same. APGAR scores were the same. The uh, neonatal yep. gas pH was the same. There was a slight uh, worse in base excess in the gas, but... That's okay. the only, only outcome that otherwise was any different. <coughs> Did they follow them up for um, dual puncture headaches? Because I just had a quick look while you were talking to see what sort of um, kit they use for the <coughs> dual puncture epidural. And they use mm-hmm. a 25 gauge spotty needle mm-hmm. uh, and, and a 17 gauge two needle. Yeah, so some of th- there were some differences certainly with what we use. As, as we said, the drugs they used were different. They used 3% chloroprocaine to establish the block. Uh, and the needles that they used were slightly different. Uh, so n- no... Uh, they, they point out that the epidurals are placed by the normal team. It wasn't placed by the investigators, so that includes their trainees yep. and specialists. Yep. Um, and they did have two accidental dual punctures in the group, one of whom required a blood patch, the other one didn't. Um, but they didn't report otherwise on okay, other complications of puncturing. Those are puncturing with the two-in-needle, two in yeah, not... Or the two-in-needle, okay. Yeah. yeah, obviously that's... <coughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, so, so, yeah, so limitations, so... We're trying to extrapolate here. Should I do a DPE for my labour birth suite epidurals in case I need to take that woman up for emergencies there in delivery? Yep. Um, so that's the question which uh, they're trying to answer with this study. It doesn't obviously address that because that's not the study design. It would be much more difficult to design that study, I suppose, to try to yep. recruit women in labour for this on the off chance that they do come up for emergencies there in. Uh, but, and also, it was a short time interval, so it was only one hour between... Uh, placing either the DP or the epidural and coming up to have it topped up. So maybe in the sort of standard time period between placing the epidural and coming for the top up, it's possible that there could be some change in the way that the dura heals or the, the way that the drugs cross over that yep. that membrane that could yep. negate some of this effect. Um, but it is at least something that's it's thought-provoking. Though, thought-provoking. And, yeah. Uh, you know, if you were going to do a CSE anyway, or if you had someone that you were really worried about maybe they had a difficult airway and you wanted to make sure that their epidural was most likely to be able to be topped up, you could consider doing a DPE in that circumstance. Yep. Thought-provoking. I think it's um, a really interesting study. Um, all right. A skeleton walks into a bar and says, hey, bartender, I'll have one beer and a mop. <laughs> not, that, not that good. I right, think yours better. is better. <laughs> okay, I'll work on, my, I'll work on that. <laughs> Caught me off guard there. Yeah, you got to you got to throw <laughs> it keep up yeah. <laughs> Okay, I've got. Um, so I chose a paper from um, IJOA, International Journal of Obstetric Anesthesia, which I know um, Mike Pake, uh, our previous professor, is the uh, chief editor. Although I'm not sure if he's going to be doing it for too much longer. And I know um, some of the guys in the department help uh, review articles and work as editors for th- this journal as well. So it's the most um, it's like a, it's a, a niche journal, uh, which is just for our sort of area of uh, practice, which is obstetric anesthesia and critical care. Anyway, this is um, this first article is um, um, it's just a correspondence really. I just thought it was, it was interesting, so it's not really a high level 
study or anything, but it's um, a group from um, a small 109-bed community hospital in Tennessee who wrote in and they wanted to talk about um, neuraxial buprenorphine for post-cesarean delivery analgesia, a case series. Hmm. So basically what happened is um, in the US, and I think in their hospital in particular, there was a shortage of or they're unable to source uh, neuraxial morphine or infothecal morphine for a period of time between November 2019 and September 2020. Uh, I'm not sure if it was related to COVID or mm-hmm. um, or or otherwise, just a sort of coincidental. Mm. But anyway, in that time, they uh, decided to use um, off-label use of buprenorphine uh, as their intrathecal analgesic for cesarean deliveries. Mm-hmm. Um, and there has been some publications of other people doing that in the past, so it's not completely crazy. Mm. Um, and I certainly know that there, there are people in... Western Australia who have used intrathecal buprenorphine for um, analgesia. I don't know, I don't know if it was in obstetrics. So, mm-hmm. so it, is, it does get used, even yeah. though it's this is an off-label use. It's not considered a dangerous off-label use, I don't think. Cause I assume it's still <coughs> preservative-free. And yeah, it's preservative-free um, opioid, and I think mm. most people are happy that that's a fairly safe thing to do. Mm. Um, and so they used it in 125 women. Um, 83 of whom had a spinal and 42 had an epidural. And interestingly, they decided to use exactly the same dose no matter what, which is which surprised me a little bit when I was reading this. That's That was one interesting thing. Because mm-hmm. I know with morphine, obviously, we titrate the dose down quite a lot. Mm. Um, so, you know, a standard dose in an epidural uh, of morphine is like two or three milligrams. And if it's intrathecal, we usually use 100 mics. So that's a big, a huge difference. Yeah. <coughs> so that was interesting. Um, and then basically they just published their experience. So basically they showed that the median time to the first opioid use after the caesarean, uh, or after they left theatre, was about nine hours, which is similar, they say, to intrathecal morphine. Sorry, that was very loud. <laughs> um, and uh, the incidence of post-operative nausea and vomiting was 12%, and, and itch was 9%, which is... Um, not not high, and in fact, probably if you look at like published literature for um, a woman having intrathecal morphine, is probably lower than uh, uh, than what the sort of generally accepted level is for intrathecal morphine. But but we can't really make any conclusions, I don't think, because this is not a proper study mm. where there's a where uh, we don't know how well the data is collected, and mm. it's not a comparative Randomized study. Minded, Randomizes, yeah. yeah. It might just be that the way the data was collected is was more studious and. A sure. randomised trial, and that they maybe they missed patients who did have these things, but, mm. but they weren't looking, you know, they weren't recording it as fastidiously. So, I don't think we should read too much into that mm. until someone does a proper comparative study. Um, they didn't have any respiratory depression or neurotoxicity, and basically they just thought um, that they it was um, thought provoking, and that, that future future studies should um, be done looking at, you know, f- for example, f- dose finding to find out what would, what would be the um, is, should there be a difference between sp- spinal and epidural um, doses and what is the optimal dose? And um, they were saying that hopefully this will stimulate this, an application from someone to apply to the FDA for uh, this drug to be considered as for a new drug for investigation so that it's not considered off-label and that people can could study it because mm. it may have some advantages. What, what sort of advantages do they speculate? <coughs> um, what would cause them to give up morphine? Yeah, so I think um, less itch and less uh, nausea and possibly, you know, it's safer when it comes to respiratory depression because that's what people, when we use it people claim when we mm. use it uh, in, in other methods, you know, mm. sublingually and things like that. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, and certainly, you know, that's why it's used in um, big doses uh, in patients with uh, opioid addiction and things like that. It's considered safe, safer. Yes. Um, so I don't think we can read too much into that, except that it was interesting that some people out, uh, out there are using it and, um, and that, you know, maybe someone out there should look into it in a bit more detail. Mm-hmm. Maybe in rats or something first. I think there's been plenty of s- studies on rats. <laughs> it's probably time for to leave the rats alone. Study, right. study <laughs> a patient group that, we're, that we look after. <laughs> but it could, mm. be, it could be useful. Yeah. Um, Do a side okay, veterinary care. Good. What's yep. your next study? All right. So uh, my next study is diverting a little bit away from obstetric anesthesia. Uh, so this is from my previous fellowship. So um, shout out to Fiona Stanley and the uh, simulation fellowship. There. This is a paper. It's entitled. There's no such thing as non-judgmental debriefing, a theory and method for debriefing with good judgment. Yep. Uh, and this is written by Jenny Rudolph, who's a uh, prolific author in the field of simulation yep. and debriefing from uh, the Harvard Medical School Center for Medical Simulation, which I understand has quite a good reputation for pioneering a number of techniques here. So yep. uh, although this is uh, from 2006, so it's not really a new paper, but it is pretty foundational in the yep. theory for... Uh, so I, I can remember, I was just saying this before, I can remember um, someone getting us to read this when I did a simulation fellowship, mm. probably about 2006. And still relevant. Anyway, so um, hopefully we're not retreading ground that's been discussed in this podcast before, but I thought I would just quickly discuss what I have taken away from this paper and um, uh, using this debriefing technique. Yeah, I think before you go on, I think it's so uh, not everyone probably does simulation, but I think everyone or lots of people who are listening do debriefing even though they may or may not know that mm. they do it. Mm. So if you if you work with trainees or um, students, you know, be they be they medical students or nursing students or anyone and you're trying to sort of give them feedback, then debriefing is like another word for feedback really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I suppose. Yeah, this is just facilitating reflection yeah. basically. <coughs> yeah. So, uh, so, so there's it. probably some some gems in here, some some useful stuff. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um so Useful to first start think about exactly what you're saying. Now, why do we debrief? Uh, yeah, it's essentially to ensure that the participants are reflecting on what we want them to reflect on. Yep. Um, we shouldn't fool ourselves, and you know we've all been part of simulations, and it's still going to tick away in your brain hours and days later. So everyone's still going to be reflecting on things on their own after your um, your scenario. So it's worth thinking about. This is just one part of the reflective process that allows us to guide the reflection towards the learning objectives and the reasons why we designed the simulation that way or what we're trying to get uh, yep. our trainee out of it, right? So um, this paper introduces the concept of frames, which are a way that we make sense of, as she describes, external stimuli, so that um, if you understand the way that people experience external stimuli and their actions are an inevitable response based on how they, what their frames are, how they yep. process that. Okay, how they so, frame the world. Yep. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's doing something well, or mistakes, they're uh, thought to be uh, inevitable results of, of what their frames are. So exploring, maybe changing the frames, which then lead to the actions and results. If we focus on finding out what their frames are, and we can hopefully modify those. So this is a way of finding out what our participants' frames are, right? Uh, so then she talks about a, a series of approaches to debriefing so historically. So uh, we'll, we'll go through them and, and use some little examples. So the first one is she describes called the judgmental approach. Yep. Uh, so the first two here are going to be ones which we 
and not encouraged to do, and the third one's going to be the one which we are encouraged okay. to do. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, this, so this podcast could backfire if, <laughs> right, if people stop listening after the first yeah, so, two minutes. So please don't use the judgmental approach. Uh, <coughs> so I, this is not something that I've heard anyone use, but the judgmental approach is... Uh, so I'll use an example of a, a simulation where um, uh, there's a as part of it there's an RSI and Roger you, you give this patient saxmethonium and the patient has myotonic dystrophy or some other contraindication to the sax. Yep, okay. okay, so, so yeah. Uh, so in the judgmental approach, uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be harsh. You could try and have this gently, but you're making a judgment and you might say, Roger, I saw that you used sax. Like, who can explain to the group why that was such a terrible idea or something like that. Right. Yep. So um, in, in this approach, you as the instructor are the source of truth and you're bestowing that truth upon your participants. Yep. Uh, and although it has one good thing going for it, which is that the participant at least knows where you stand, they know what they did wrong. Okay. <laughs> yep. so, so at least there's something. Okay. Uh, so as a reflection on that judgmental approach, uh, people thought about, well, how can we balance giving... Uh, uh, maintaining trust and psychological safety in our participants while still avoiding negative emotions. So they came up with this idea of non-judgmental, um, although we'll see there's problems there. So this is often taken by the so Socratic approach to questioning, where yep. we don't explicitly say what our judgments are. So we might say something like, now, Roger, I saw that you chose to use sucks for this case. Um, can you explain why you did that? Yep. Right, okay. Although that's worded in technically a non-judgmental way you know you can we're all intelligent you can see that there is definitely a judgment hiding behind there i wouldn't yep. be asking the question unless there was a reason you shouldn't have used <coughs> sucks okay yep so that can lead to your participants feeling um it's not quite as blunt con- it's not as blunt but uh your participants can either feel confused or defensive yep. from, from that sort of approach and that's you know this would also fall into the other non-judgmental judgmental approaches um sugar coating or um the sandwich approach Yep. Uh, avoiding the problem the problem altogether. Yep. Uh, so, uh, although there, it's said to be non-judgmental, there definitely is a judgment. It's just hidden, and your participants are sort of guessing at what your judgment is. Uh, we're expecting our participants to be upfront and honest about what their problems are or what mistakes they made, without yep. us also being willing to name and uh, share what our opinions are about those mistakes and be willing to be wrong about that as well. Um, so. Uh, that we talked about the judgmental approach and non-judgmental approach. Uh, so then this paper introduces a third approach, which uh, she calls debriefing with good judgment, Yep. Uh, which is finding a way to openly discuss their errors while also respectfully inserting our own clinical and behavioural expertise. Um, and at the same time, we're trying to widen our focus into exploring and finding out what our participants' frames are yep. and why they made that action. Um, so... The way that she described this debriefing with good judgment approach is uh, using a technique called advocacy and inquiry, uh, which is often shortened to AI, although AI is obviously an acronym which is used for another purpose. So um, the advocacy inquiry approach uh, is a three-step process in order to phrase the question that you're going to ask your participant. Uh, so it's pairing advocacy, which means that you're making a stand and you're um, advocating for a particular point of view, and then you're making an inquiry and trying to understand how yep. that fits in with so the how would you do that if yeah. after I've just killed someone so, sucks yeah so the three <laughs> steps are um, <laughs> you first need to make an observation uh, and that observation needs to be clear clear and unequivocal so you say so Roger I saw that you gave methonium for this RSI okay yep. uh, the second step is in, you need to share what your judgment is 
Um, <laughs> and don't be shy about sharing a judgment. It's important that you name the thing. You don't want them to be guessing. Yep. So you'd say, I was concerned that you gave sucks because this patient had myotonic dystrophy and that could be dangerous for them. Or they could, yep. you know, Sounds a bit like problems. a judgmental um, approach <laughs> oh. so, so far. <laughs> Well, I'm sharing Just a little bit more. I'm, I'm just saying what you've done. I'm, I'm sharing that. I'm, <laughs> okay, what my yeah. concern is and, and what okay. my, how I how I interpret that in my frame. Yep. Right. Um, and then I ask you a question. You say, can you share why you chose to do that? Why you okay. chose to make a decision to use that drug in that way? Um, so I think that if if I ask that that question, that allows you to. Um, I'm actually trying to find out genuinely what the reason is that you so chose prob- that drug. Probably a lot of the difference between the judgmental and this approach is um, not necessarily the words you use, but it's the non-verbal stuff. Because you can say it in a, with a tone of voice or mm. a, a look like you're like, God, you're useless. Um, or you can be like, you know, actually, I actually do want to know yeah, what happened because maybe you didn't hear. Yeah. yeah. yeah that maybe during the simulation you didn't hear the bit about the fact the patient had myotonic dystrophy. Yeah, for and example. So yeah. you weren't aware of that and... Yeah. Um, that's yeah. that's me. But you might have the um, participant say, you yeah. know, actually I looked at it and I saw that their symptoms were very mild or, uh, you know, I considered the risk benefit and I chose to use it for this reason. Yeah, um, uh, right. And so you are actually genuinely <coughs> trying to find out the reason why they did yeah. that. Uh, it also allows you to be wrong, right? And so uh, I've used this approach and I've made a judge, you know, shared the judgment that I, yeah. I made in the debrief um, and actually yeah. I was wrong in what I said. Uh, yep. But it's fine because uh, this allows you to use this technique. You yep. know, as a trainee, you can ask a consultant questions this way and you can share the reason why you would think something and ask them why they did it. And then they are open and allowed to correct you in that in that point of view. Um, so this approach... And, and often during simulation, I've, I've found is that people don't sometimes, because it's quite artificial and it's a mannequin, so mm. sometimes they do, do misinformation. Mm. And so yeah. you think, oh, why, why are you doing that? But it's because they actually... Yeah. They didn't know. So that could be that would be a quick, that, and, quick and easy thing. They'd say, you know, I actually just didn't hear that and I missed that. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, whatever they say, there's fruitful ground there to cover. Yeah. Um, and then you could go on to talk about how we, you know, uh, divide our attention, how we shift our focus, how we uh, make sure that we don't miss parts of the handover if we allocate someone to review the notes. And like, there'd be lots of things there to discuss if that was the yeah. reason it was missed or if there was a technical reason why they made that decision, you can then dive into that. Uh, so this opening question allows you to identify. Um, now, again, yep. it doesn't have to be a mistake. You could use this approach also for something good. You could point out something good that someone did, and then you can ask them why they chose to do it that way as well. Um, and then yep. we'll open it, open it up, and you can then continue your debrief by exploring and asking questions about about any of those things. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's modelling, being willing on our own to uh, make a judgment and defend a belief. Uh, being putting yourself out there and being willing to to make take that sort of stand and, and be willing to be wrong yep. and so before expecting our participants to do the same um, so you know in, in my experience in my simulation fellowship and debriefing using this technique uh, it is much much better at avoiding people being prickly being defensive um, and they yep. and hopefully they'll come back and engage in simulation again in the future because if people find it as a like they're under the microscope and getting exactly getting heat put on them. They, there's, yeah. there's a lot of people out there who don't like simulation because of that. Yeah, they're very anxious about being um, 
scrutinised and criticised. Yeah. <coughs> so the understanding here is that uh, it's not that I have the truth and you don't, but that yeah. we're trying to find the truth together and we're trying to discuss it. Yeah. We yeah. shouldn't forget as well that in debriefing, this is usually in a group. It's usually not just me asking you questions, but yeah. uh, by exploring the frames that will help the rest of the group to understand things. Um, yep. And certainly if there's something that one person doesn't understand, then you can always guarantee that other people in the group have the have same. Have you found that... Um, your attempts to be, you know, um, use good judgment and this, this very sort of li- like nice technique have been um, hamstrung or hindered by other participants in the group who, who leap in and <laughs> use <laughs> language that is counterproductive. Well, um, this is more or less <laughs> like an opening a springboard. So yeah, if yeah, usually okay. the first question in each topic is usually you try and use this AI style questioning. Yeah. Um, I, I, my experience <coughs> in debriefing is with other anaesthetic trainees. Uh, and by the time they get through, most most trainees have been part of at least a dozen or so simulations, yeah, and we right. all know the drill. Okay. Um, I imagine it will be more difficult. So most people aren't trying to be too too, too critical of their of most their, people of their are peers. U- usually trying to be um, yeah. helpful and supportive and get the most out of the experience. <coughs> anyway, so good, a very useful paper. If, if anyone's um, looking to improve their debriefing or even just um, feedback in in general, that's yeah. um, that's a, a good paper. Thanks for that. Um, I'm going to shuffle my bits of paper around a little bit until I find <laughs> until I find my. I printed all this, some of these articles out and I made really good notes and then I left them lying mm. on my bedroom floor at home, so I had to do it again <laughs> half an hour ago. <laughs> do you want me to sing a song while you find <laughs> the? No, it's right. Yeah, okay, so second um, article this um, that I'm going to present. So this one was um, also just a. Um, a short report, it's called, from from IGR, from International Journal of Obstetric Anesthesia last year, or this year, sorry. And this one really is just a, um, an observational study, but I've, I've, I found it interesting because it was basically, uh, uh, the title is Improving Blood Product Management in Placenta Accreta Patients with Severe Bleeding and Institutional Experience. So this is a large uh, referral centre in Israel that... Um, Sounds like it's the it's the main or the national referral centre for women with placenta accretus syndrome. Mm. So they all end up, or most of them, all get referred to this hospital uh, for their for their surgery. And so they had a look at a cohort from January 2012 to December 2018. So that's uh, seven years. And over that time, they had 221 cases. Uh, so that's about 30 cases a year. And they had. 72,000 deliveries. So, so they're a hospital that does 10,000 deliveries a year mm-hmm. and they did about 30 cases a year. <coughs> and, the, and the reason I wanted, I like the study and wanted to talk about it is just because I just wanted to compare it to what we do. Does that it's compare to our numbers? So we do about 10 to 15 um, cases of placenta recreta syndrome a year at Kingwood mm-hmm. and we're the referral centre for Western Australia. I know there's a f- we do know that there are a few cases done at other hospitals, but the majority of them now are, uh, all come mm-hmm. here. Um, we do about five thousand deliveries a year, so it's sort of similar. So, so they're they about double. Yeah, so mm-hmm. about double, and then so they do thirty a year, we do ten to fifteen a year. So mm-hmm. maybe we do slightly less, but it's pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, we'll, and I think uh, Matt Epi's new percentage recruit team has been going for about five years now. Mm-hmm. So we've got what a, we've probably got getting close to a hundred cases. Um, maybe about. So sorry, we've probably done about seventy or eighty cases since we had a dedicated team. But over, obviously, we've done lots over the years. Mm. Um, it's a really I just I just found it interesting that <coughs> um, I just wondered wondered how they did it. And so 
they describe that they have 10 sort of very experienced consultant anesthesiologists who work there for a long time and they basically they look after these cases and they've all become quite proficient at it because they do so many and uh, they don't really have um, a sort of a structured guidance or a way of doing it. They just, um, so they describe that their usual practices, they, they have two large peripheral IVs and a radial art line. Um, if the patient has placenta accreta syndrome grade two or three, which is like, you know, increta or percreta, mm-hmm. then most of the time they get a GA. Um, and they base their transfusion, they don't use any sort of targeted therapy, but basically their transfusions were guided by estimated blood loss. So they would use a ratio of four units of red cells, two units of FFP, and six units of cryo. Yeah. And they would just give give those blood products based on how much blood, blood came out of the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't really targeted or, or guided by... They didn't uh, do any testing. viscoelastic testing. No viscoelastic testing. Mm. Or, uh, pre- pre- presumably they were t- doing some laboratory testing, but as we all know, that takes quite a while to mm. come back. So most of the time they were just giving them empirically based on how much blood was lost. Mm. Um, <coughs> and Were they giving platelets as well? Yes, yeah, so I think so. Um, uh, one to one to one. So sometimes they gave platelets, but I think most of the time they didn't give platelets. That's what was rare. Mm. Um, there is a table on there. I'll go back and have a look mm. at it. But yeah. <coughs> One interesting thing I found was that out of out of the 220 patients that they managed, the overall hysterectomy rate was only 18%. So that is like very low, strikingly different to what mm. we what we do. I, mm. mean, I think a lot of our patients, you know, the majority of them get a hysterectomy. Yeah, um, most of them have had you know a number of cesareans before, and they're not that keen on or not that um, obsessed with having future pregnancies because they already have children mm. um, but that's quite a big difference that's, so that was a striking difference they do use intrauterine balloons a lot which is you know, the batteries and things like that and they also use um, 20% of the patients were getting um, uh, catheters in the in the arteries so sort of you know radiological techniques which we don't use because we don't have interventional radiology mm. at our hospital but as in they did that preemptively I wasn't clear. I didn't read. I didn't read that closely. But no, possibly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So they might. They usually, I think, the usual technique is they place the balloons, or uh, place the catheters um, preoperatively, and then they inflate them post delivery. Yeah. 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 Um, <coughs> and then they, and then the rest of the paper was um, just an observational. Well, they just divided them into the group that bled a lot and the group that didn't bleed much. So I think two thirds, one hundred and thirty-three of these two hundred twenty-one bled quite a lot, and that's. Um, defined as needing more than three units of red cells and then they just looked at various other things and they their conclusions were that um, in, s- that in general their approach has l- led to overtransfusion, and there were definitely some cases of hypoxemia but that in the future they, they are aiming to implement a point of care testing regimen so they are going to sounds like pros- probably move to using viscoelastic testing or something like that to guide their transfusion therapy mm-hmm. rather than this empiric approach um, but they thought that overall, because they, um, because these cases were done by very by anesthesiologists with significant experience and, and good clinical judgment, that it wasn't it was a pretty reasonably safe approach because mm. most they had very few serious complications. Uh, although they did have a small number of patients who had hypoxemia and needed ICU admission and, and respiratory support, you know, from overtransfusion, it was pretty small, like it's like two to five percent. Mm. What about complications from leaving the uterus in? Were there many? um, Yeah, so it wasn't really. It wasn't really a paper looking at 
And so they're, they were looking at the management of um, blood products, so improving blood product management sure. percent of accredited patients. Not so about the so Not about the sort of surgical outcomes, yeah. outcomes and things. So it doesn't have the data on that mm. yet. So that that would be interesting. Yeah, that, that stimulated my thoughts too. Was like how many of these women, mm. where the primary surgery you do some um, uterus sparing technique, like putting a balloon and sending them to the ward. Mm. How many of them actually end up eventually coming back and having a hysterectomy anyway? Because that seems to have, in the, in the cases where we've done it here at uh, King Eddie's, that's quite a significant number of them come back a week, yeah. or a week or two later, mm. and end up having a hysterectomy anyway because mm. it's, cause it's um, they end up having some bleeding, mm. delayed bleeding, that, and that sort of doesn't work. Yeah. Did they use self salvage very much as well? Um, yes, so no, that study? wasn't that wasn't mentioned actually. Mm. Um, that's a good point. I, I'm not sure. They didn't even mention it, so I wonder whether they didn't use it at all. Anyway, I just found it interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's good It's good to hear what other people do. Interesting that they didn't talk about whole blood. I know that in some um, aspects of uh, in Israel, anyway, we, uh, the conference we went to recently, they, uh, I think the Israeli military are looking at using whole blood, but mm-hmm. it wasn't used in... Civilians. In, the, in this population. Mm. <coughs> there is a... Uh, I didn't choose it for General Club, but maybe I should have. There was a there was a um, a paper where they, um, a group in Santia, San Antonio, which is um, where they they do use whole blood for civilian trauma. Um, their their centre there, they looked at um, whole blood versus fraction using traditional sort of fractions or component therapy in uh, patients with a, a Greta syndrome. Mm-hmm. I think it was an observational, not a randomised one. <coughs> Um, but they showed that the women who were receiving whole blood uh, for their accretive surgery overall used less had less blood products administered to them. So that was that would be something maybe for the next general club. Mm. All right, so we're at thirty six minutes. I did have another paper. Should I present it? I think we should because I've read it. I've, <laughs> I've made the effort to read it, and I'm going to I'm going to present it anyway, whether you like it or not. God damn it. We're going to have a short break, a short humorous interlude first. Um, have you heard about the chocolate record player? I have not. Sounds pretty sweet. <laughs> right. These these are pretty shit today. I'm not sure where I'm getting my <laughs> material from. Okay. <laughs> okay, the final paper. It feels unfair because I've got three and you only had two, but yours were better than mine. So mine are all these dodgy in, um, observational studies. This one is a um, from anesthesia and analgesia, uh, their section on obstetric anesthesiology, entitled Incidents of Interstitial Alveolar Syndrome on Point of Care Lung Ultrasound in Preeclamptic Women with Severe Pe- Features, a Prospective Observational Study. So I'm definitely, I'm definitely interested in op- observational studies. Um, I'm just going to send a message to my wife <laughs> who wants to know. Um, so, in summary, what they did uh, over 15 months, they um, recruit managed to recruit um, 70 patients who had preeclampsia with severe features. We mm. won't go into the definition of that. That's um, yeah, um, textbook. Te- a textbook definition. Mm. Um, and what they did was at three time points, so at uh, admission, 30 minutes after delivery and 24 hours after delivery, they did a lung ultrasound mm. of these women looking for uh, lung interstitial edema, which you can see if you understand lung ultrasound, it would, um, you can see what's called what are called beelines or comet tails, which are evidence of 
fluid in the you know, extravascular lung fluid. Of, um, and what it is, is um, it's a sign of um, early pulmonary edema, basically. So, yeah. it's, so you, can, you can detect uh, interstitial fluid in the lungs of these patients mm-hmm. before, it's, and it's clinically silent often, but before they develop overt pulmonary edema. Mm. Um, so it is a very useful thing to do. Well, that, and that's the theory of you know how common is it and how easy is it to to detect. Yeah. Um, so it's, so it's a very that was pretty useful. And so what they found was that actually sixty four percent of the women with se- severe preeclampsia had um, evidence on lung ultrasound of uh, extravascular lung fluid or, or this syndrome. Although their definition was a little bit soft, so they they if they saw one B line mm. in one of the lung fields, they 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 said that. that this existed, but actually, it's probably a little bit soft. Because we normally say three. Yes, it's usually two or three in more than one um, lung field because mm. it is possible to have um, a one or two occasional sort of comets <coughs> or B lines in, in healthy lungs. Mm. So they might be overcalling it a little bit. Um, and then in some of the patients, they also did a point of care echo to assess them for diastolic dysfunction, looking at the E to E prime ratio, which is, um, I won't go into the details, but it's a way of assessing whether the left ventricle can relax and can fill you know so if the left ventricle is having filling problems mm-hmm. which is an indirect way of measuring filling pressures which is also you know when you get um, high filling pressures that's when you go to pulmonary edema yeah and they found that um up close to 50 percent of the women also had so this is something that's not as easy to do yes it requires a lot more skill and training to teach someone how mm, to, do these, mm. to do these measurements uh uh, almost fifty percent of women had that, and if if they had diastolic dysfunction, they they all all of these patients had B lines. Mm. So the, the takeaway point was that um, maybe looking for B lines is a very uh, a, a simple, um, easy way of screening pa- um, um, patients with severe preeclampsia to see if they're developing diastolic dysfunction and are at higher risk of going into pulmonary edema, mm. or at higher higher risk of going into pulmonary edema. Mm. <coughs> Um, if the woman had dyspnea or a puffy face, they all had B-lines as well. So yeah. that's just like using clinical acumen, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does this mean? Well, that's actually probably harder to tease out. It was So it's, it's interesting observations. But does it mean that we should be doing it in guiding therapy? Well, there's no, haven't been any studies yet to, to say that people who use, you know, focus or lung ultrasound in the assessment of patients with severe preeclampsia then ch- change their management based on that, and then it leads to better patient outcomes. That's that hasn't been proven. It'd be interesting to know, uh, if but that probably should be something that people should look into. Mm. Yeah, if the patient had B lines on admission, uh, are they more likely to develop dyspnea or yeah, you know, other symptoms later on? And so, is this should we predictive and yeah, can modify so if, their behaviour? If we see patients and they have no B lines, but they're not making much urine, mm. so, so these are sorts of things, thought provoking things that we could study. If we see a patient with severe preeclampsia who doesn't have any B lines, but has low oliguria, and we're worried about the urine output, mm. it might be safe for us to give them. We might say that's probably okay to try a little bit of fluid and see if we can help them. Mm. But if we do see B lines, maybe we should be giving diuretics or being more cautious. Um, maybe it might help us choose the um, types of um, antihypertensive therapies. You know, should we be using vasodilator or a beta blocker? Should we be using a diuretic? Yeah, um, things like that. Should we be putting them in a higher, higher level of monitoring? Should we be putting them in something like an HTU, or are they safe? Are they, are they, is it safe to 
um, let them go to a less monitored mm. area, things like that. Just yeah. helping us guide decisions, uh, and then um, you know, so that's yeah, it sounds like it'd be great to have more clarification on that, especially yeah. as you say, uh, lung ultrasound or just at least identification of the bee lines is something that you can do quite easily and yeah. and quickly with minimal training. That's right, and so then, so the one sort of takeaway thing is if. If, if we do find that this is a useful thing to do uh, in the future, and you know, not just anesthesiologists, but even obstetricians should also be learning how to use focus uh, to look at the lungs because it's very simple and straightforward mm. to, to, to look at someone's lungs and, uh, and to identify bee lines. They're very yeah. quite easy to recognise, and you only need an abdominal probe, yeah. which is ev- ev- and on every label. They uh, probably uh, have that obstetri- probe in their hand anyway, don't they? Yeah, that's mm. right. And obstetricians are very good at ultrasound um, because they do ultrasound a lot yes. um, in their practice. Yeah. So, um, and they're, they're, they're often the ones who are looking after these patients um, mm. and assessing them when they come in. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to finish there. It's been 43 minutes. Quite a, quite a few bad jokes. <laughs> Thank you for indulging. Thank you very much, Declan. Yes. Thanks, Roger. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandgynecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time. I'd like to acknowledge the Wajak people as the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. We pay our respects to Elders in past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people.